All right. Thank you for joining us um, for our next session. My name is Mike Riskin. I'm on the Life Science Tools and Diagnostics team here at B of A. Uh, joining me here is uh, the senior analyst on the team, Derek DeBrown. And with us for the section, we have Schrodinger. So we're joined by Rami and Karen. Um, I think, first of all, thank you for joining us today. I'm sure it's a very busy day. You guys reported uh, first quarter results this morning. Uh, nice. Probably could use a break, but we're going to try to squeeze 30 more minutes out of you. No, no, we're good. <laughs> before you get a breather. So I think to start, I think you had some, uh, some prepared remarks and maybe some slides to go through. So let's kick off with that. Sure. And I understand everybody has access to those slides. So if you navigate, read every word in slide two, of course, and then when you're done reading every word in slide two, you can go to slide three and that's where we'll start. <laughs> All right. Give everybody a second to do that. Good. So Mike, then get started. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. I'll good, good. Great. Great. So I'll start by stating something very obvious. We, we all know that drug discovery and materials design are incredibly hard. The large majority of programs fail to deliver a product. And of course, we all know very well that costs are really skyrocketing due in large part to the very high failure rate of, of programs, both in drug discovery and materials design. And even when programs do succeed, the compounds often have issues in, in, in drug discovery uh, that takes the form of, of toxicity often. So an obvious solution to, is to, to this problem really is to develop computational methods that allow exploration of vast amounts of chemical space um, so that we can identify high quality molecules. So a way of stating that is what it says on the slide here. So if we could prospectively compute all the relevant molecular properties with sufficiently high accuracy, designing drugs and materials would have a much higher success rate, be much faster and cheaper, of course, and maybe most importantly, would yield much higher quality molecules. So I'll, I'll elaborate on that a little bit more. So if you go to slide four, this is really now the state of the art. So Schrodinger has made really major breakthroughs in the science. And we've developed for the first time technology that can compute key molecular properties with extremely high accuracy and in fact approach that of experiment. So the technology um, now makes it possible to explore hundreds of billions of molecules and it's having a really truly transformative impact on drug discovery and materials design, which you can see on slide five. So if you go there, in traditionally run uh, drug discovery, it's typical for about 5,000 molecules to be synthesized. And when successful, when the programs are actually successful, it takes about five plus or minus a year, you know, four to six years or so to get to a development candidate. And again, it's still often the case that those development candidates have issues. So by leveraging our platform at scale, and that's an important point, at scale, we and our partners are able to explore now billions of molecules computationally, synthesizing far few, only, only around 1,000 molecules, sometimes actually now and more recently even fewer than that. And it takes about half the time to get to development candidate. And again, this is really the key point with extremely high quality molecules. So if you go to slide six, you'll see how we're leveraging this really truly unique platform and how we're doing it in several ways. So we have a software business where we license our software to pharmaceutical companies, biotech companies, materials companies, 
universities and government labs worldwide. We're also leveraging our platform in a number of drug discovery programs in collaboration with pharma companies and biotech companies. And we also have an internal drug discovery pipeline. And uh, Karen will tell you more about uh, our collaborative drug discovery programs and our internal pipeline in, in just a moment. And just wanted to highlight here that we have a track record of revenue growth. And as Mike said, I'm not sure if he said it before we came on or not, but anyway, this, this morning uh, we reported our Q1 uh, revenue of 32.1 million that represents 23% growth from Q1 last year. So I'll hand it over to Karen uh, and then I'll come back. Uh, Karen, we're on slide seven, I believe. Thanks, Rami. Yeah. So as Rami uh, just highlighted, we have deployed this platform uh, across a large number of collaborative programs. And I'll just spend a minute to characterize the different types of collaborations we have. Uh, you can see here that these are, have been applied to programs that are now advanced and in the clinic. And indeed, in our early collaboration with RGS, those programs are now FDA approved. Uh, in addition to those, you can see that early on, um, about uh, 10 to 15 years ago, we had been participants in launching companies who were exclusively using this technology to develop their pipelines. Uh, so Morphic, uh, for example, and Nimbus, uh, those programs that you're familiar with uh, came through using this approach to drug discovery. And those programs are now uh, in advanced stages of uh, clinical development in some cases or in phase one, uh, and uh, a new set are moving into IND enabling studies. And I think what's important to note about those collaborations is that these are across all therapeutic areas, all target classes. Uh, the technology can be used on uh, many, many different types of drug discovery programs, protein-protein interaction inhibitors, kinases, proteases, and so on. Uh, in addition to Morphic and Nimbus, there are a number of new companies listed, Ajax, uh, Fashan, Bright Angel, Petra, and Show-T. These are also uh, um, biotechs that we work with on a number of programs. Uh, in addition, you can see that we have collaborations with pharmaceutical companies, Ono, Sanofi, uh, and Takeda, where again, while those companies buy our software, they're also uh, working directly with us to realize the full power of the technology. Uh, we deploy these uh, methods across the whole drug discovery program from identifying uh, new, point, new starting points all the way through to a development candidate. And in many of these programs, um, we're able to do that at a very high scale, and that's what these collaborators are benefiting from. In the case of Takeda, we run those programs in a cross-functional manner, so we actually deliver a development candidate to um, Takeda. So moving on to slide eight, um, over the last three years, we've actually embarked on running um, our own wholly uh, owned programs. This is where we've selected oncology programs uh, for Schrodinger's internal drug discovery team uh, to first uh, come up with the ideas as well as push them all the way through to development candidate. And so you can see here CDC7, We1 and Malt1 are wholly owned programs. Last year, you may be aware, we did a, a transformational uh, in, uh, a business development uh, deal with, uh, with BMS. 
where uh, some of our earliest wholly owned assets were actually uh, included in that deal, two oncology programs uh, that we had previously disclosed, a third, and then an immunology and neurology target that our teams had come up with. Um, in terms of the progress on the pipeline, um, I will say that the three wholly owned programs are in advanced stages now. We are moving these forward into IMD enabling studies and expect to be in the clinic in the first half of next year. Um, in terms of the update we provided this morning on slide nine, uh, in our MOLT1 inhibitor program, which we presented at ASH last year, uh, we have actually now uh, um, named our development candidate, and that is moving forward. Uh, into IMD enabling studies, as we said, and the other two programs are following. Uh, we're also building out our capabilities to support our clinical development activities, um, including regulatory, CMC, DMPK, ADME, and all that you'd expect to see in a fully integrated program moving into the clinic. And so we expect to actually submit up to three IMDs next year, uh, with the first being in the first half of 22. In addition, we are planning to replace those targets, so expanding into additional disease areas. We've spoken about immunology previously, and so we'll be initiating new programs this year. And with that, I'll hand back to Rami. Thanks, Karen. So on slide 10, it's, it's a little bit of a busy slide, but let me walk you through it. It's, it's, it's pretty important, actually. So we're obviously really excited about what the future holds. So to give you a sense, of what the next decade is very likely to look like. It's useful to actually see how we got to where we are now, and, and I think that will give you a sense about where we're going. So, of course, you all know that computer performance has been increasing exponentially for a long time, continues to do that now. But what may be less well-known is that the number of proteins in the human genome for which we know the three-dimensional structure is also increasing exponentially. The number of compounds that we can explore computationally is also increasing exponentially, as is the number of properties we can compute with near experimental accuracy. So what does all this mean? It means that we can reasonably predict within the next decade or so that certainly computers will be probably more than 100 times faster than they are today. I mean, that's really pretty extraordinary. High resolution protein structures of probably around half of the human genome, and I mean high-resolution protein structures, of approximately half of the human genome will be available. There'll probably be around 10 or so molecular properties that we can compute with experimental accuracy. And I think this all leads in the next decade, or we believe this really will lead in the next decade, to being able to reliably discover extremely high quality development candidates in about a year from program launch. So it's clearly a really exciting time for computationally driven drug discovery and of course, you know, in general molecular design. So on the final slide on slide 11, I'll just close by highlighting our key growth strategies. So we will, of course, continue to advance our computational platform to fully realize the vision for the future that I described earlier. And you know, at the moment, we are the clear leader. And we intend to maintain our, leaders, our leadership position by continuing to aggressively invest in the science that underlies our platform. It's a very important part of our, of our strategy. Uh, we'll continue 
to license our platform to pharma and biotech companies. We'll continue as well to advance our uh, collaborative drug discovery programs and initiate new ones, as Karen talked about. We'll continue to license our platform to material science companies. We'll continue to advance our internal drug discovery programs. And again, as Karen said, initiate new ones. And we expect in the future to initiate material science collaborations as we did a number of years ago with uh, drug discovery collaborations. And, and I'll just leave you with this final point, which is a very important point, is that these multiple business areas and growth opportunities uh, is, is the extraordinary synergies between all of these areas of our business. I know it may not seem very obvious, but, but, but there are, maybe we can talk about that later in the Q&A, these extraordinary synergies between these business units and that we're continuously leveraging. That's a very important part of the growth strategy. So thanks everybody very much and, and happy to answer, answer any questions. Great. Thanks. Um, thanks, Ramachari. That is a, that is a great overview. I appreciate that. Um, I want to remind investors really quickly that if you've got questions, feel free to submit them via the portal. You should see a question field right there, or you can just Bloomberg chat us uh, or send an email to Derek and I, and, and we'll try to get them in. I think just to get the ball rolling a little bit, um, I want to ask sort of like a high level one that we've gotten a lot over the past year, year and a half since the IPO is, you know, if you just think about computationally driven drug biology, uh, drug discovery. Yeah. There, there are a number of these platforms coming up, mm -hmm. right? There's a number of machine learning, mm -hmm. uh, advanced computational platforms that are all working to improve R&D efficiency and sort of disrupt the traditional paradigm. So, you know, one of the questions we get a lot is, you know, why can't Google or Microsoft just throw or Amazon just throw, you know, a couple hundred million dollars in this problem and come, come up with the best, you know, AI and machine learning system out there. So if, what's your what's your secret sauce? What's at the core of the Schrodinger platform yeah. that gives you a leg up that can't readily be replicated by just uh, mm -hmm. by anyone else right now? Yeah, yeah. So look, we're we're very proud of the of the leadership role that we played in this. So this, this is a field that actually goes back more than 30 years. I mean, people, a lot of companies have been trying and academic groups have been trying to solve this fundamental problem of predicting properties of molecules prospectively. And, and we are the first ones to be able to achieve that. And here's how we did it. And now that this will answer your question, then I'll talk a little bit about the other approaches. So this idea, there, there, there are basically two approaches at a very high level. One is what we often refer to as knowledge-based. That's now people are calling that machine learning and AI and using all kinds of fancy words. But really what it is, is knowledge based. And what does that mean? That means that you and this is what you were I think what you were alluding to uh, what Google might be able to do is say, well, we have a lot of information right now about about compounds, about targets and so on. So we can feed that into some kind of model. And now we have much more sophisticated deep learning and, and, and convolutional neural networks and so on. And, 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 and maybe that will somehow change the 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 potential for these kinds of technologies and of course the availability of more data. But here's the thing that that's really important to understand. The size of chemical space is almost infinite. It's estimated to be around 10 to the 50, 10 to the 60. What does that mean? That means that the size of the training set that's required is enormous. In fact, it's larger than can possibly be ever produced uh, using sort of traditional experimental methods. So even though it's exciting to say we have a lot more data and we have these sophisticated machine learning methods, it's actually not possible 
to develop a global model for any of these properties. And the limitation then of these methods, these machine learning or knowledge-based methods, is that you only know about, you can only know about, what the, about the data that you already have. And then my point is that data is incredibly small. It's a very, very small amount of data relative to the size of chemical space. The other approach and what we've done is we've developed first principles methods using what we call physics-based methods, which capture the actual physics of the problem. So if you want to calculate the affinity of a small molecule to protein, you have to actually simulate the molecular interaction. You have to simulate at an atomistic level of detail all of the terms that are required to be able to compute something like affinity. And that allows us to go into new chemical space. You're not limited. This is very important. It's not a knowledge-based method. This is a first principles method. You, there's no training set. There's no knowledge. You don't need knowledge. You just need an input structure, the input structure of the protein, which is why I highlighted that as one of the exciting things that's happening you know, now and into the future. And you can actually compute these things using rigorous methods. Now, here's the really interesting thing. These methods, of course, you don't get anything for free. These methods, as they're incredibly accurate, but they take, they're, they're computationally expensive. They take about a day to calculate on one GPU uh, and, and for one molecule. And so what we're able to do now, and this is a really extraordinary way of kind of combining the, these, these two methods, is we can develop enormous training sets using these physics-based methods because it's exactly like doing the experiment. But we can do hundreds of years of experiments in a day by, of course, running these things in parallel. So just think about that. You can collect an enormous amount of data using these physics-based methods, which you can then use to develop a local machine learning model, which can be used to process. And that's how we can get through hundreds of billions of molecules. You can't, you can't run physics-based methods on that many molecules. And, and they're still not very accurate models, but they're good enough to, to essentially enrich the top, say, 10,000 molecules out of the billion to where there's some good molecules in that top 10,000, then you put those through the physics-based methods. So the secret sauce, and I'm sorry the answer is kind of long, but sort of important, uh, the secret sauce, if you will, is these physics-based methods. But I think it's also the combination of machine learning with physics-based methods that's allowing us to do the sorts of things that we talked about today. Okay, that's, that's, a, that's a very helpful answer, uh, Rami. I actually appreciate that. Following up on some of those comments, and this is something you kind of highlighted in, in slide 10 of the presentation. I thought that was a great overview slide, but um, if you could expand on that a little bit in terms sure. of what's changed in your algorithm, in your system, what's changed in the data sets over yeah. the last couple of years, whether it's compute power, whether it's the CryoEM structures themselves, sort of, and what I'm getting at is, you know, one of the things we've always struggled with is sort of like quantifying the value add. If you could just put a dollar or some other metric on it, where is it today versus where it was a couple of yeah. years ago? Because this, this helps us think about how quickly pharma will ramp up spend over time and ramp up utilization of the platform. If you think that, you know, 10 years ago, there wasn't very much value add. Five years ago, there's some. Now there's a lot. Going forward, there's a lot more. Right. So there are three things, basically. One is the fundamental accuracy of the methods and the number of properties that we can compute. And that's something where, as you know, you know, nearly half of the company I means a couple hundred people in the company are devoted to working on that. That's the basic physics, the science to, to improve the accuracy. The more accurate the predictions are, you know, obviously, the, the more impactful it is. But the interesting thing is, is and, and we can go back to that, but Computer speed is, has played a huge role because of what we were talking about before. How do you solve this incredibly hard problem 
that is drug discovery. And we're convinced of this, that because remember what drug discovery really is. It's this incredibly complicated multi-parameter optimization problem. You're trying to design a molecule that's potent and selective and soluble and permeable and all these other things, but those properties are fighting each other. I'm not sure people really fully appreciate that, that when you make a molecule potent, usually that's not very soluble. And when you try and make it soluble, it's not very permeable. You see, you get the idea. So it's this incredibly, it's very fine tuning. Now, how do you solve that? Well, you calculate the properties accurately, but the other thing is, you have to explore huge amounts of chemical space because you're sort of threading this fine needle, right? Just find that perfect molecule that balances all those, all these properties that are fighting each other. And the way to do that is to explore you know, hundreds of billions, trillions, even more. And I think that will continue. And that's the point of that slide is that with compute power, with expanding compute power, we can now get to a point where we're exploring enough molecules. And that's what it takes, hundreds of billions of molecules to find those perfect molecules that have the potency and the selectivity and all the other drug-like properties. Now, the other thing that's really exciting, and you, you, you touched on this, is the input to these physics-based methods is a structure of the protein. And the explosion in, in availability of high-resolution structures through advances in cryo-EM, but also in crystallography, and by the way, in computational methods for refining those structures, because that's important, it's expanding the number of targets we can work on. So even just in the last few years, just the number of targets that are within the domain of applicability of technology is really increasing. And that has implications not only for our own internal programs, but for the whole industry, right? The more targets that are amenable to this kind of design, the faster we'll get to, to development candidates on a larger class of targets, which has, you know, obviously incredible, you know, implications. Thank you. That's uh that's very helpful. Thank you, Raleigh. Um, Karen, maybe I'll, I'll pose one to you. I had a couple of qu uh, questions coming from clients. So one is um, for the wholly owned internal drug discovery candidates, if successful, uh, does Schrodinger intend to develop these on their own or self-partner? And if you could sort of expand on how you think about different stages, pre-IND, post-IND, phase one, sort of how that factored into some of the, the Bristol conversations last year, just sort of cover those bases. Certainly. So I think for each program, it really is sort of program dependent to some extent, but I'll just make some general remarks that um, we are looking at lots of targets all the time. And some of them, I think, are appropriate for early partnering. And that's to some extent what happened last year with BMS. Now, for the advanced molecules where we've identified late stage molecules or development candidates, uh, we've decided that actually taking them into the clinic and generating a phase one package is uh, certainly within our uh, scope of what we, we, we'd we like to be able to do, uh, that we can fund and support from a um, cross-functional team perspective. We have an early development team now which is gearing up to do that. In terms of um, the outcomes of each of these studies, whether it's a preclinical late stage like our ASH presentation, or it's a phase one package, uh, we think that gives us a lot of optionality. For some mechanisms that are really uh, gaining a lot of momentum in, in, in the industry, uh, we're not averse to partnering those because in some cases, actually, the combination agents that you require to fully maximize potential of the mechanism are available at another partner. And so whether we do a co-development, a clinical collaboration, or a preclinical collaboration, I think it really depends on the target. 
Um, but at the moment, our view is that taking these programs into the clinic ourselves, expanding the data package, showing proof of biology, and in some cases where needed, because some of them have proof of concept already, uh, taking those further, I think, will uh, lead to more interesting uh, business development opportunities for Schrodinger where we're able to capture more value from the assets uh, and in some cases have a long-term potential revenue coming from royalties on what we believe are some pretty interesting and de-risk targets. Yeah, and it's, it certainly feels like it's a, it's a flywheel effect where you've got the software, you've got the, the collaborations, you've got the internal pipeline and all of it kind of helps fuel the rest of the business and it all, it all kind of works together. So Correct. As Rami said, the, the, there's a sort of virtuous cycle here. Um, and I, I think as we've pointed out, you know, as these molecules move into the clinic or get partnered, our goal is to replace those with more exciting uh, programs. Okay. Um, one other one um, came in from an investor while we were talking. Um, it's it's about it's something that we've we've discussed a number of times with clients over the last couple of weeks and months. It's sort of the the pacing of revenue over the course of 2021, uh, in particular on the software side of things, because we understand that you know drug discovery can be a little bit more volatile. So it's it's a question on sort of why is most of the revenue coming in the fourth quarter? You know, understand that it's based on when contracts were signed last year, but the comps get tougher. So maybe if you could talk through, um, was there really a step function? Um, Last year, during the middle of the year, did people really start spending more 2Q, 3Q, 4Q? And that's when, therefore, you're getting the same seasonality this year. Um, was there any, did, how much of a, of a role did COVID play in this in terms mm -hmm. of timing or pull forward or things like that? Yeah, that seasonality, by the way, really goes back a very long way. I mean, that, that's, that's been historical for as long as, I, as long as the data I've been looking at, 20 years or so. It, it's seasonal and it has to do, of course, being tied to to pharma budgets. And that's just when they're doing their contracts. And look, as you know, uh, uh, quite a number of our customers have been with us for decades. And so, again, this can go back. Just that happens to be when when the, the contracts were signed and that's when the renewals are. So that that explains the seasonality with regard to, to the question about what happened in 2020. It was an incredible year, absolutely incredible. And it might have been what may what happened may have been catalyzed by COVID, you know, all of a sudden everybody found themselves not being able to get in the lab and 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 not being able to make as many compounds as they were used to using so obviously there's this sort of demand well we need to do something and obviously uh, essentially doing synthesis and and computational and, and assay sorry on a computer using computational assays looked quite attractive and a, and a and a large number of companies adopted the platform now i think that had to do also i, I don't think it's a coincidence that that was happening at the time when our internal programs were progressing, we were talking about those, you know, there was a lot of validation, right? The, the progress that Morphic was making, the progress that Nimbus was making, and, and a number of other companies were involved. And I think that obviously played, played a role. And so, so we're excited about that. I mean, I think that's a really good sign. And we're seeing now, this is really exciting. For the first time, pharma companies are now talking in public about the impact that our software, our platform is having on their programs. And I think you know how, how encouraging that could be. I mean, there's no better marketing, if you will. I, I almost hate to call it that. But, you know, obviously, that's a very helpful uh, to have other companies uh, talking about the impact that the software is having. I, I think I think other pharma companies really pay particular attention to, to, the, to those sorts of things. So that's what we have to look forward to this year. 
And, and of course, the following year and the year after that, right? Yep, yep. Derek, I think you, you had a question. Hmm. Yeah, actually, hey. Um, Hi, Derek. So, obviously, there's been a number of companies that have shown up in the, the synthetic mm-hmm. biology space. A lot of them are focused on material sciences. You have a material science program. Um, could you talk a little bit more about that? And when we're going to start to see some collaborations. I mean, I, I, I always thought that was a very intriguing part of the platform. And it's just something you just really don't talk about as much. Yeah, no, that's true. It's a, it's a younger business. It's a smaller part of our revenue. What is really important to point out here, though, is that because we have developed these fundamental physics-based methods that are, of course, completely agnostic, not only to the modality and drug discovery projects, for example, or target class, but also, of course, to the systems themselves and the physics that governs, for example, the behavior of proteins in water, protein being a polymer, is, is fundamentally the same as, as an organic polymer that might coat an airplane wing. And so we've been leveraging a lot of that same technology in a number of different verticals in material science. We talked a little bit about that, OLEDs, polymers, and now most recently batteries, and we're really excited about that. Here we have to, again, building on the existing science, uh, develop new technology for, for example, simulating chemical reactions at the interface between the solid and, elect- and, a, and, a, and a, a liquid, that is the electrode of a battery and electrolyte. And so that's a basic research project. We're excited about the progress we're making. And we're excited to start, you know, maybe later this year, start to talk about some of this technology. But I'll tell you, um, we have quite a number of customers. They are starting to publish papers, actually. So if you look, there are quite a number of patents, actually, and papers that are coming out of these companies and a number of different verticals using our technology. So I think I think the word is starting to get out, but it is a, it is a younger business. Yeah. Oh, and then collaborations, I didn't answer. So we, you know, we obviously, I think you can see, we benefited tremendously from starting to do that. I mean, that was really enormous and it really started for the most part with Agios and then with Nimbus, you know, in a really significant way. And so that's not lost on us. And and we're looking to do something similar on the material science side as well. Yeah. I think we're, we're almost Yeah, I just saw it go to zero. Sorry. I want to ask him one, um, one last question. Sort of our, our concluding mm-hmm. question is, you know, Derek always likes to ask sort of mm-hmm. what's most misunderstood. Mm-hmm. I'll put a slightly different twist on it. Sort of what's the biggest debate point? What question do you get from mm-hmm. investors the most? Where do you think, I don't know if controversy yeah. is the right word, but sort of mm-hmm. what do you think the focus is and sort of what, what would you like to address yeah. um, with investors? No, it's, it's a great question. And I think there's a really obvious one and I sort of touched on it, which is, we have a software business and we're providing software to the whole pharmaceutical industry now more and more to materials companies. And at the same time, we have a biotech business, both collab, right? Collaboration programs and internal programs. And that's, that's a little bit difficult for people to immediately get their heads wrapped around, right? How does that work? And what you're competing with your customers and why are you doing that? And are these two separate things. And I think it's actually an incredibly important feature of the company. And I think it's actually one of the key ingredients to the success of the company. The fact that we have a software business where we need to produce software that we give to somebody else and they have to use it and get value out of it. That's a lot different than developing software that's a black box that you just need to use yourself. I mean, it really is. That's a different proposition. I think that's led 
to the advances. And, and of course, think about that. Thousands of customers we've interacted with, how much we've learned from that. And that's all been put into the software that's helped us drive these projects. And then I think on the other direction, it's more obvious, which is, of course, the success of the drug discovery programs has really, I think, woken up the industry and gotten people excited. And without that, how does a, how does a software company convince pharma companies to completely change how they do drug discovery? That's not going to, that's a very difficult thing. And believe me, that we, we tried that <laughs> before we, you know, had things like Nimbus. So I think it's something that's that's a little bit complicated, right? And a little bit hard to explain. But I think once you hear it, hopefully what I just said it's, is, is it convinced it, I think it's hopefully it's convincing that this is actually quite an important feature of the company. And I think another sort, another, in some sense, a competitive advantage, I think. Yep. Yep. All right. Thank you so much. We're, uh, we're over time. Well over so, time now, yeah. Brian, Karen, appreciate you joining us. Thanks so of much. Course. Thanks for listening in. Um, I, I season is, is opening up shortly. So Derek, uh, Derek is making me ask. So, uh, keep us in mind, um, when the vote opens up. Um, thank you, everyone. Great. Thanks a lot. Thank All you. Right.